Well, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are making our way quickly through this book. We'll actually be done in just a few weeks, I imagine, here. Um, uh, last week, we looked at uh, possessions. Solomon was talking about possessions and the danger that possessions can present to us. Uh, we looked at the poor and the oppression that the rich and those who have all the possessions uh, typically put upon the poor. And the idea was this. Well, it might not seem the best to be poor. Riches are not necessarily the answer. That's what he was really looking at. Um, contentment is to be content whether you're rich or poor. And chapter 6 concluded with um, an interesting question. Who knows what is good for a man in life? Who knows what's good for man in life? And, and we really came to the conclusion, well, no one really does. God ultimately knows what's good for us. That's why we, has, we have his word. He tells us what's good for us. He gave us his Ten Commandments. Those aren't restrictions. Those are ways to live that we might enjoy life, right? That we wouldn't uh, kill each other. We'd actually enjoy life much better if we weren't stealing from one another and lying to one another. Those are, those are things that are good. And so God ultimately knows what's good. He tells us what's good. And none of us is in the position to, to challenge God on the subject. However, <laughs> comma, it doesn't mean that we have a complete lack of, of human uh, knowledge about what is good. While ultimately it is God who knows what's best for us, man can and, and has. We've come to certain convictions and understandings that there are some ways of living that are better than others, right? Even, even through experience, human experience, we can realize, well, that, is, that was better than this uh, way. Uh, wisdom is better than folly, right? Solomon's already come to that. Conclusion. So Solomon gives us wisdom here in this chapter, and it seems like maybe sort of different pieces of wisdom, but wisdom for the present. It's not, it's not wisdom that just applies to Solomon's day, that was just applicable to his people, but it's wisdom that we can, we can look at this and, and we can see this applies today. It's wisdom for the very present, the life that I live even today. And so chapter 7 really appears, at least the beginning here, as a response to that question. Who knows what is good for man in life? So let's just jump right into it. Chapter 7, we'll cover the whole chapter today. Let me read it. Follow along. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to, to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you did not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful.
but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this chapter before us today, this chapter by King Solomon. And Lord, we recognize this, that this, this is your word, divine scripture. And we recognize, Lord, that we need divine understanding today. And I pray that you'd grant that to us, Lord. Your Holy Spirit would be with us and move in our hearts that we might be able to understand the words that are before us and apply them to our hearts that we might live lives that glorify you. So be with us today as we open your word, as we study these pages, Lord. We want to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a lot of verses to get through, but some of these will kind of go rather uh, quickly. Um, Solomon begins really to give us wisdom about good things, things that are better than other things. In fact, you probably noticed the word better over and over and over again. Better is the word tov. Now, we've been in the Old Testament, so we've been looking at a lot of, a lot of Hebrew uh, words here, but it's tov. It means pleasant or agreeable or, or excellent. And better is all, all through Ecclesiastes. Uh, so far, he's used it in chapter 2, verse 24, when he said, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink. Remember that? He should, he should enjoy the good of his labor. In chapter 3, verse 12, he said, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to, good, to, to uh, do good in their lives. In chapter 4, he used it a, a bunch of times. He said, better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together. Two are better than one. Better a poor, uh, poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. So better, this idea of something that's better or more excellent has been a theme. He's been using it continually, but, but here it's sort of, it's sort of concentrated. It's used in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, a couple times in verse 8, and in verse 10. So these first 10 verses are really outlining things that are better than, that, that wisdom does allow us 
to discern what, what is be- a better thing or a better choice than another. We're not just at, at a, you know, hopeless and just have to pick and hope one of them works out. We can use godly wisdom and make a wise choice. Things that are better than. So let's look at what kinds of things uh, Solomon chooses here. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. So here he says it's a good, good name is better than. That word good name, the two words in the English there is one word in the Hebrew, it's shame. That's how you pronounce it, which is funny. A good name is shame. Um, but that's how you would pronounce that word, it's spelled S-H-E-M. But it's your reputation. It's your fame. It's your, your glory. So what's view here is not just a, a name, because uh, many times I've seen people, people's names do not match up with their character. I've met many a joy who is anything but a joy. What's in view here is your reputation that flows out of your character. So here's something that's better than your reputation. Remember when God renamed Jacob? Right, Jacob was his, his name, but God gave him a new name. What was that name? Israel. Israel. That's right. Israel means prince of God. Prince of God. In Genesis 32, 28, God said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So he's been given a new name. It's prince with God, and it's not simply a label that he's giving to Jacob. It's meant to express an underlying nature. He's chosen a, nat- a, a whole nation of people, hasn't he? And so I'm not just, it's not just Jacob, it's, it's Israel. It shows their, their place with God. They're like princes. I remember in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse, verse 10, they're recounting the work of God against the Egyptians. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. That's the same word, shame. God, you made a name for yourself. You made a reputation, right? You did all these amazing miracles against Egypt, and your fame went out. That's the idea. But what is a reputation better than? It's better than Precious ointment. Hmm, precious ointment. What, what is the idea there? Well, the idea here is inner character is more crucial than outer fragrance, right? I mean, it's, it's the inner you that really matters. I mean, ladies, you can put as much perfume on as you like, but if you're not sweet, you know, sweet smelling on the inside, you can bathe in this stuff and it's not going to help. It's the inner you that really matters. And this person's death, he says, is better than the day of his birth because he didn't bring a name into the world. His his parents named him, but he can leave with a name, can't he? He can leave a reputation. He can leave that behind, and it can be either a good one or a bad one, right? We, We can see that with people in history. There's certain names you just don't see people named today. How many daughters are named? Jezebel right? Anyone named their child Adolf lately? I I mean, you just don't see a lot of those things because they have a a certain reputation, a connotation, and we just don't want those things attached to that reputation. Reputation is a better thing. It's better about what's on the inside, the character, than what's on the outside. We see that today. What's another thing that's a better than? Well, funerals. 
That doesn't sound very better, (laughs) but Solomon says it is in verse 2, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Funerals are better than parties, he says. We've had plenty of funerals lately. I don't really want to go to any more anytime soon. And Solomon says that those funerals are better than, say, our bring-in share luncheon that we'll do next Sunday. It's better to go to a funeral than to that. And why is that? He says, for that is the end of all men. That's the end of all men. When we go to a funeral, every funeral anticipates our own, does it not? You do have a moment there where you must think about life. Death causes us to think about life. It doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, you're going to think about it. You're going to think about the words that are said about that person, their reputation, perhaps. And you're going to think about, what will people be saying about me? How am I living my life? You're going to contemplate those things. But guess what? On the normal day-to-day stuff, are you really worried about that? Like, we really don't care about what people, we'll cut people off. Well, like, we don't care about those things, right? But when we're faced in that moment, we start to think about those things. What kind of reputation will I have? What, what is my life? And wait, where am I going? Where am I going to spend eternity? Do I believe in eternity, right? You could think about all these different things. He says, because the living will take it to heart. That word heart is lave. We see it all through the Old Testament. And we honestly don't have a good English equivalent to it. Because heart doesn't do it sufficient justice. I know we mention it, but it refers to a whole, uh, a whole sphere of things. It refers to our inner person in a general way, as evidenced by our thoughts, memory, inclinations, resolutions, emotions, uh, passions, desires. All those things are wrapped up in that Hebrew word heart. The living will take it to heart. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To number our days means I'm going to think about how many days I have. I'm going to think about how valuable this day is, right? Taking wisdom to heart, you're allowing that concept of eternity to really sink in, aren't you? And so he says, the living will take it to heart. And what is another thing that's present at a funeral. Well, verse four, uh, sorry, verse three says sorrow, right? Sorrow. That's usually at a funeral. You're going to see sorrow. Well, he says sorrow is better than laughter for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. So sorrow or, or grief is better than, than laughter, he says, because it's, it's, it's better situated to make a right judgment. It, um, it sobers us, doesn't it? And that sorrow can make a heart, he says, better. Now, this word uh, better is not the word we just looked at, tov. It's just uh, that means excellent. This one is yatav, yatav. And it means to just be to to make, make it well, to make it rejoice, to make it glad. You can lift up the countenance of your heart with sorrow, (laughs) right? Is that true? Does that seem right? That, That sorrow is a better thing for your heart. How do we see that taking place? How does your heart rejoice from a place of sorrow? There's a great New Testament example, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, 
leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Interesting, isn't it? Sorrow over sin leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Sorrow leading to something that your heart could rejoice over. There's a great example, isn't it? Sorrow in the case of a funeral for someone who is a non-believer, who has not stopped and taken the time to consider eternity. Where am I going? Is there a God? What's this guy talking about, right? Could that not lead to something greater? Could that sorrow over that lost uh, husband or father or friend not lead to everlasting life? It could. Amazing, isn't it? So sorrow is better than laughter because sorrow is usually coming from some kind of place where you can think about something of, of value importance, particularly in that, that context of a funeral. But at a party where there's just gaiety and laughter, there's not usually things of eternal significance happening there, is there? Nothing of real value. And so verse 4 tells us, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We have both hearts here of the wise man and the heart of the fool, and they're both being contrasted here. Where's the heart of the, of the wise man? He's in that house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of, of mirth. The wise man's thoughts are on the subject of death after a funeral. He allows it to rouse his concerns, to reflect upon his life, but the fool, the fool who goes to that funeral is never on eternal spiritual things. He's preoccupied with the parties and the feasting and the the fun things in life. So we have a reputation is is a better thing, a better than thing, and a funeral is a better than thing. What else is better than? Verse five, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Correction. Correction is better than. How many of you love to be corrected? Not a lot of hands going up, right? Not, not a favorite thing. Solomon says, no, that's a better thing. It's better to be uh, corrected. It's better than having the song of fools, he says. Now, what are the song of fools? Are the song of fools songs of, of praise and maybe flattery? That could be. I've heard it translated that way. That's the idea here. It also could be in reference to the songs being sung right at the parties by the fool, right? Things that just don't have any lasting value. Either way, the point is the, the rebuke has substance, right? There's something in a rebuke that can change character, maybe heart, but, but the songs don't do that. The flattery doesn't do that. The rebuke has something of value. The songs don't. The flattery doesn't. The wise man receives a rebuke. He receives it. And notice what he says about it in verse 6. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Interesting. Like the crackling or the, literally the sound, that's what that word means, the sound of thorns under a, a, a pot. So thorns have been put under a pot to, to maybe heat water in a pot. They've lit the thorns, right? And it's crackling. So that word for thorns um, is a sound. The word for pot is the same uh, word. And Solomon's kind of going for this little pun kind of thing, like the sound of a seer under a seer. I've heard it said like this, the idea is like nettles crackling under kettles. He's trying to make a point here. The, the nettles will make a lot of popping sounds, really loud, right? And they'll burn really fast, and they'll be gone. And so that is the song of fools. You get a lot of flattery, right? A lot of noise, a lot of, and then it's, it's just gone. There's nothing lasting from that. But a corrective rebuke can bring some substance there, can bring something of 
value. That's why Proverbs 13, 18 says, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. None of us are perfect. And we need rebuking in the church. It's in scripture. We got a rebuke in the, the church. And Solomon says, yeah, that's a good thing. To be corrected is a good thing. But what if we just go around flattering one another all the time? What will that do? What kind of church would we be? We'd probably be a lot of hypocrites, right? And so there's nothing of value there. So correction um, is a better thing. Now notice the contrast of the wise and the foolish there we saw, right? You had that all through that little section there. So the question I think Solomon's thinking about in verse 7, is it better to be wise? He's gone back and forth to that, hasn't he? Wait, so is it, is it better to be wise? Look at what he says in verse 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The worldly wisdom, or the vanity of worldly wisdom, I'll say it that way, can be easily corrupted, can't it? Like we saw the wise people and the rich uh, people in the beginning there who are oppressing the poor. They're easily corrupted, and that wisdom can be lost through oppression and through bribes. The wise man who joins that race after possessions, like we looked at last week, and compromises his integrity, perhaps, he receives a bribe, He's just as much a fool as those who join with fools in empty laughter and empty flattery. I think that's the idea here. He debases his heart and he becomes like the fool's heart. So even if you're wise, if you join in, going back to that chapter uh, five idea there, join in that idea of pursuit of riches and pursuit of those things, you really become like the fool. And so our wisdom must be guarded. We, we, we want wisdom, but we got to guard it against things. We can't sacrifice our integrity for wisdom is the point here, right? You can't, you can't start oppressing people. You can't start taking bribes. That's the idea. So he looks at another better than thing in verse 8. What's better than? Endings are better than. Verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. I would beg to differ um, looking at the Star Wars saga. <laughs> I would say Empire Strikes Back, episode 5 is the best. But endings... Now, remember, when you look at these things, too, these are not, you know, absolutes across the board. I'm sure we could find some things like, oh, endings aren't always. But remember what he's been talking about. He's talking about things of value. Star Wars is not one of those things, sorry. Um, things of value, things that change character, things that shape hearts, those kinds of things. It refers to the outcome, the end product. Let me ask you this. When you're in the middle of a trial and going through trials and persecutions and temptations and all of those things, what's better when you're going through it or when you've come out of it? When you come out of it, the ending, right? And that's what James talks about in James chapter one, verse two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I'm supposed to be joyful when I'm in trials? Yes, because you're looking at the ending knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You're looking at the ending. What am I going to get on the outcome of this? We don't particularly like the trials when we're in it, but he says you can be joyful in it. Take Solomon's wisdom because we know the ending is going to be better. That's what we're looking for, the ending. And it leads to patience. And Solomon talks about patience now as being something that is better than, look at the other half of verse 8, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So patience is better than pride. Patience is better than pride. It doesn't seem like those are the things you would look at. You would look at patience and impatience, right? Why patience and, and pride? Patience is slow to anger. 
That's, that's the word there. Patience is slow to anger. So how is patience slow to anger better than a, a proud spirit? What's the, idea, what's the idea here? Well, there's a lot of things going on here. I just got to point out. Notice the word spirit. You see it several times here. The patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. You see those three spirits right in a row there? All right. Spirit is an interesting word in the Hebrew. In, in terms of overall categories, it can mean wind, it can mean breath, it can mean mind, and it can mean spirit. And in the spirit category, it can mean a lot of different things in there. And one of the things it can mean in terms of just uh, spirit can mean the, um, like the seat of your emotions, right? Sorrow, desire, trouble, those kind of things. But also it can mean in terms of exertion, um, things that lead to temper, anger, impatience, patience. I think Solomon's having a little fun with the word spirit here. He says that patience is a better thing in the spirit. Patience is better than impatience. It could be literally read like that. It's better than the proud in anger, right? You can see all these things kind of, he's messing around with these words because they all kind of go together. Don't hasten in your spirit to be angry. See all those words? They're all right there. Because Proverbs 16, 32, a proverb of Solomon, he says this, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You see that? He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Ruling your spirit. You get that idea? Patient in spirit. Ruling your spirit. Slow to anger. The proud do not rule their spirits. Guess what does? Anger. And pride and anger, when, when, you, when you go to anger, you are always making a judgment. You're saying someone has done something that deserves my wrath. That's what you're saying. And you can only get to there because of your pride. That person cut me off. I am the divine one on the road. They deserve the wrath of Kevin. And I'm going to tailgate them all the way home. Right? That, is that coming from a pride place? It is. I have determined that they have done wrong. Now, have they really done wrong? Oh, maybe. A little bit. But to deserve that? No. Do you see the connections there? Patience, slow to anger, is always better than a proud spirit. Always. So it says we've got to be patient. Patience is a better thing. And it comes from those endings. These are all connected. These aren't just random things, right? So if you can wait through trials and temptations and learn patience, guess what? You're going to have something else that's better then. You're going to have a better, you know, um, countenance and control of your spirit. Amazing. If you're patient in spirit, you probably won't hasten to anger. Anger is not a great reaction to trials either, is it? Look what he says in verse, verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Right? That's where the, the fools go. They have no wisdom. They have no control of their spirit. Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Now, I think that's connected because anger leads to unwise thinking. And he gives us an unwise example. This example is an example of a better than comparison that we shouldn't make. Do you see it? We shouldn't make that kind of comparison to better than. We shouldn't go, oh, I wish we were just back in those days. Those days were the better days. Now, we all do it, and we all pick different generations. We pick different times. Some say the 80s. Some say the 70s. Some say, you know, uh, Genesis chapter 1. But we we just, we got, 
we go to different places and we go, oh, it was just better than there. And, and he says, that's unwise thinking. Why is that unwise for us to do that? Listen, no, no amount of pining over another era will ever help the difficulties we find ourselves in. N- none. You will, you will never get ahead in life. I love the example from Ezra chapter 3, verse, verse 12 and 13, because they've come back out of captivity. They've sort of laid the foundation for the new temple. Remember, the old temple has been destroyed. They've taken uh, into captivity by the uh, Babylonians. They come, they come back. They've laid the foundation, and you have different reactions from different people. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers, um, old men who had seen the first temple, so they'd seen Solomon's temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So you have two groups of people. You have people who had seen the first temple, and they see the foundation laid for this one, and they're going, oh, this is puny. This is terrible. We saw, oh, this is nothing. I can't believe it. Oh, were it like the days of old? Were it like Solomon's temple? This is rubbish. And you have other people who weren't alive when there was a temple. And they're out of captivity, and they're looking at the temple like, this is amazing, we have a temple! And they're praising God. You see that? Were those Levites and those priests doing any good? Oh, if only we're like Solomon's temple. Like, oh, it's going to go back into captivity. Right? You have a temple! It's amazing. They couldn't change anything from that. Sad. Sad. So Solomon has, has just kind of guided us through here just some examples of things that are better than these are all things that we can relate to today. We can see today. Your reputation is better, right? Your inner, inner character, what people are going to say about who you are, ultimately is going to be better than all the outward showy uh, things. Funerals are better because of what they can produce. They can produce thinking about eternal things instead of frivolous things. Correction is better because that can, that can bring uh, about repentant hearts, right? Endings are better because we're looking at the end product of even difficult things. And patience is better because it helps us to control our spirits. Those are all the things that he's covered in there, the first 10 verses. This next section, giving us examples of when wisdom is good. Wisdom is good when, and you can kind of fill in the blank, right? Wisdom is good when, and the first one is this, it is coupled with riches. If you mean wise and rich, That's a really good situation. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. Here's the idea here. People that have wisdom but don't have the riches, you know, they're looking for opportunities, right? They want opportunities to do good. They want opportunities to bless people. They want to use their their wisdom. but, But many times those opportunities don't come because they lack the resources, right? They don't have the riches to do that. You have the opposite guy, riches, but no wisdom. Well, that's like the guy in chapter 5 who loves silver and he'll not be satisfied with silver, right? If you just have riches and no wisdom, you're just going to keep getting, 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 hoarding, 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 and you'll never be satisfied. He's going back to that and saying, but the perfect, perfect combo is wisdom and riches. If you could have those, if those both come together in one man, then many men can benefit. Many people can benefit. Why? Why is that true? Look at verse 12. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. 
but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Here's a simple idea here. You have wisdom is a defense. Wisdom is a defense. It's a, it's a literally shadow or a shade of protection, it says there. And money is a defense, right? If you're wise in life, you can hopefully avoid a lot of mistakes. If you have riches, there's a lot of things that can help protect you as well. It's double protection, protection and protection. And verse 12 here says, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So the profit or the advantage of that wisdom is alone to those who actually have the wisdom. But, but if you have riches, you can bless, you can bless many. You have a double protection here. It's profitable to those who see the sun, he says. Wisdom is defense, as money is a defense. And the excellence or the profit of knowledge is wisdom gives life to those who have it. It gives life to them. That's the idea, I think, in Proverbs chapter 3. If you want to just make a short left-hand turn there, Proverbs is a wonderful uh, book. I hope you've, you've read through it a, a few times. talks about wisdom almost like a person, like a woman, right? Seek for her as for riches, that kind of idea. This is how it brings life to one who has it. Proverbs chapter 3, just a left-hand turn from where we were, verse 13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds, wisdom, her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. Do you see that? And her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is like a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who attain her. She's like a tree of life. Well, that's what Solomon says here, isn't it? Like you, that you will have, uh, basically, life. Life to those who have it, because wisdom is like a tree of, of life. It's a blessed thing to have wisdom. Wisdom's also good when it considers God's work. When it considers God's work. Verse 13, right off the bat, it says, consider. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? What work of God are we to consider here? Are we to look at creation? Are we to look at the universe? Are we to look at the, the, the planets? and the, what, what are we to, to look at here? What, what work should we consider? For who can make straight what he has made crooked? I think it refers to something we've already studied in this book, God's providence or his sovereignty, right? Who can, who can make, you know, you, you can't un, you know, do what he has done is the idea here. Who can make straight what he has, he has made crooked? That's God's providence there. He said that in chapter 1, verse, verse 15, similar to that, right? What's crooked can't be made straight. I think the idea is that this, is that, that we must think about this. Wisdom's good when we're operating under the understanding that God is the one that's in control. Remember chapter 3? We've been saying a song a little bit about it, right? There's all these seasons and all these times. God has ordained those times. There's an event for every time. He oversees those things. All the activity of man under the sun is not just random acts of activity that he knows nothing about, but he's providentially in control of all of those things, even the things that are difficult. And so here, wisdom is a good thing when we're considering his providence. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Verse uh, 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, we're going to consider something else in the day of adversity, but in the day of prosperity, be joyful. 
So we're to serve the Lord in the day of prosperity, to have joy. Is that a tough thing, to have joy in prosperity? We should be able to do that, right? When things are prosperous, that's usually, that's usually when we're, we're extra joyful. In fact, that's probably also when we, when we pray less, right? When we're prosperous, we don't really need much, so we don't really pray a whole lot. But we can be joyful about what we have. But in the day of adversity, how are we? In the day of adversity, he says, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Interesting. Yes, be joyful in prosperity, but the question is being really proposed here, but what about adversity? Should you be joyful in adversity? Should we change our countenance just because things got more uh, difficult? Remember, Job went through that. Remember that? His wife definitely chose a path there. In Job chapter 2, remember, he lost, they lost everything. In Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> uh, lovely woman there. Um, but he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. You see that? It's a foolish, it's a foolish heart speaking there. It's foolish. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He understands God's providence, his sovereign control. He said, listen, you know, God gave me these good things. God has chosen to take away things too. I can be joyful in prosperity, but I can also be accepting of the adversity. And guess what? You can be joyful in it too. You can because you know that God's in control. It's just not some random act that happened to you and you're just the victim of fate. God forgot you. That's the kind of attitude we should have. Wisdom's good when we consider things like this, that God is at work. Another thing, wisdom is good. Wisdom is good when it contemplates the nature of righteousness. Look at verse 15. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Boy, we do. We do see that. We do see people who are, who are righteous. They're good, they're good people, and they, they die young. They die early, and then it seems like the wicked can just live forever. So is that proper? Is that okay? When we contemplate the nature of righteousness, I want to give you a few sub-points under that. Righteousness doesn't deliver from calamity. Just because you're righteous, you have the righteous standing before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which if you're a believer today, you do, 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you have that, that does not mean you're instantly set apart from any kind of calamitous event from happening. It doesn't deliver from that. Job was a blameless man, righteous in God's eyes, yet his righteousness did not deliver from calamity. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 21 to 22, he admits that. He says, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It's all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. And I remember he's struggling through these things, but he recognizes that he's blameless. God's doing this for a reason, but he, he, he makes, he's, there's no partiality there. My righteousness does not separate me from calamity here. Wisdom's good when we contemplate the nature of righteousness. It doesn't separate you from calamity. Secondly, verse 16, it can't be produced by yourself. Verse 16, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. 
why should you destroy yourself? <laughs> Don't be overly righteous. Hey, anyone ever tell you, you need to like bring down the level of righteousness a bit. Don't be over, you're, too, you're getting too high. What's he talking about? Do we control our level of righteousness? Guess what? Righteousness is imputed to you and it's done. That's what righteousness is. It's not the good things I do that make me righteous, is it? Can you do, can you do enough stuff to be righteous? You, you, you can't. God imputes that to your account. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We get the righteousness of God. I'm made righteous. I don't do things to become righteous. So who's he talking to here? He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to hypocrites. He's talking to people who try to be righteous. He's like, don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He says that destroys you. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty harsh. Righteousness can't be produced on your own. In Matthew chapter 20, um, 23, I just want to turn there real quick. That's a, a, a right-hand turn as well. I just want to bring to your remembrance the kind of things Jesus said to those Pharisees. This, this is them. They were the ones that were righteous. Matthew 20, 23. In Matthew 23, he's, it's all those, you know, woe to you, woe to you, woe to yous that he gives. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says. In chapter 23, verse 26, this is what he says. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Skip down to verse 33. Look at his conclusion. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus is pretty severe in his language there. He's talking about them being destroyed in their self-righteousness. Solomon says the same thing. Don't be, be overly wicked. Uh, sorry, uh, don't be overly wise. Don't be overly righteous. That will lead to destruction. So we understand righteousness doesn't deliver us from calamity. Righteousness is not something that we can produce on ourselves, but it can bring a good outcome in life. That's verse 17. It can bring a good outcome in life. doesn't mean it absolutely will, but it can. Look at verse 17. Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Right? If we have the righteousness of God, it's hoped that we would not be overly wicked. <laughs> it's hoped that we wouldn't be foolish because we have God's word. We have a, a book full of wisdom. We're going through one of them now, right? It's, it's hoped. And if we apply those things, we, we, we really shouldn't die before our time at our own hands. The idea is this. Those who are overtly wicked, overtly foolish, really end up ending their lives sooner than they should have ended, right? Lots of Hollywood actors do that, right? There's these, these known actors that are on the rise, and then there's this sudden overdose, and they die so young. That's the idea here. What, what were they doing? Why, why did they die before their time? Because they were overly wicked. Psalm 55, verse 23 says, You, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Ultimately, God will 
will do that work. It doesn't mean someone's going to end their life instantly, but if you're foolish, you want to go climb the outside of the Eiffel Tower because your you know, buddies bet you to do it, pretty foolish thing. Could end your life, couldn't it? So don't be overly wicked. Don't be foolish. You could end your life. Righteousness, guess what? Righteousness can save us from those things, can't it? We should be. It's hoped that we would apply um, godly biblical principles to how we live and how we act. So what's the right path? We have these two, two things here. Verse 18, it begins with the fear of God. It begins with a fear of God. Verse 18, it is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. The right path walks between the two uh, extremes, right? Reject self-righteousness. We can't be self-righteous. And we also don't allow wickedness to run uh, rampant in our lives. Understanding the nature of sin, understanding the nature of righteousness, and we're motivated by a fear of God. That's the way we should walk, right? He who fears God will escape them all. That's the idea here. So it begins with a fear of God. So wisdom is good when all those things, we got one more point under that, wisdom is good when it conducts us to the proper conclusions. It conducts us to the proper conclusions. And here's some great conclusions about wisdom. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. That's a, that's a good one. So wisdom um, with, uh, is, is strength here. That's what you, you basically see here. Wisdom is a strength. Wisdom in the fear of God is greater than the collective wisdom of a group of experienced leaders who have no wisdom, right? You have one wise man, and you can have 10 experienced leaders, but they have not a shred of a fear of God in them. Then who's the better? The one man who fears God, who has actual wisdom, right? We need power from within more than we need advice from without. <laughs> That's the idea here, right? Wisdom is a strength. It strengthens the wise. It's more than the 10 rulers of the city. Wisdom is a strength. Uh, secondly, a proper conclusion about wisdom is that all men are prone to folly and sin. All of us are. Verse 20, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. All men, all men. So the first one is about the wisdom. It's a strength. This is about men. We're all sinners. Hmm. All men are prone to that. And so that means we need wisdom, which is from above. I read that earlier today in our uh, prayer meeting, James chapter 3, right? You have the demonic wisdom from below that's described, and you have the heavenly wisdom from above that's described. We need that. We need that wisdom. All men are prone to folly and sin. So, third point, therefore, keep no accounts of evil because we're all prone to sin. Verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So keep no accounts of evil. We're all sinners. James 3, 2 says we all stumble in many ways, in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. The point in James there is that no one's perfect, right? Talks about the tongue there being so powerful, and no one can perfectly bridle the tongue. 
and bridle the whole body. So we're not perfect. Wisdom helps us to see that in others, and it helps us to see it in ourselves. So don't worry about if someone's saying something evil about you. You've probably done the same to somebody else. Don't take it to heart, right? Somewhere you've said something about someone, you gossiped, you did some malicious slander, and don't take it to heart. We're all prone to stumble. Now, I would add to that that if you're in a body of believers and that has happened, then you, you've, you've been offended, you've been sinned against, that you should use the Matthew 18. <laughs> you should go up to them and ask, tell them the situation, tell them you felt like you were wrong. You should ask for forgiveness. Those things should happen. Um, but here the idea in, in just an over-general uh, way here, right, um, is that, that we can't go around worrying about what everyone is saying about us. Like we're, we're just perfect. We've probably done a lot of the same things ourselves. We're all prone to folly and sin, therefore we should keep no accounts of, of evil. I would think about the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter th- 13, verse 5, love. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil, right? That's love. Just put your name in there. Put your name in that and see if that's you. Kevin does not act rudely or seek its own or is not provoked, thinks no evil. Put your name there. See if that's you. That's, that's the way we want to operate on this world. All right, we got one main third point here, and we'll cover these last verses rather quickly. And this is what wisdom's quest revealed. Verses 23 and uh, 24 tell us that perfect wisdom, absolute perfect wisdom is unattainable. (laughs) You can't get it. Bad news there. You can't get perfect wisdom because God alone is wise. Look at verse 23. All this I've proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. (laughs) As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? God alone is perfectly wise. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he still thought he didn't have it down. He still thought there were things too deep for him to understand. Guess why? Because you have a God that is so deep, you can't search out everything about God. Paul tells us that, Romans eleven thirty three. 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We can't know it all, right? We want to know as much as we can about God, but he is inexhaustible and you will never have the wisdom of God. Perfect wisdom is unattainable, even for Solomon. But wisdom does reveal truth, doesn't it? It does reveal things to us that are true. And that's what we see here in verse 25. I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. That is what Solomon was doing, right? That's the whole book. He is applying his wisdom to understand the meaning of life. That's the whole quest for meaning. It's all about that. He's using his wisdom to to figure it out. And so here he tells us uh, what wisdom has allowed him to find. In verse 26, fear of God can keep man from sin. Fear of God can keep man from sin. Verse 26, and I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. What is he doing here? Well, he's talking about wisdom. He's talking about that it does reveal truth to us. It is applicable and valuable for life. And if you have a fear of God, if you are one who pleases God, 
there are times in life that that fear of God and understanding him will help you escape sin. Temptation. He just gives us one such example. He gives us the example of a very famous woman in Proverbs. Maybe you've heard of her, the immoral woman. <laughs> immoral woman. Proverbs chapter 5. Make it just a short left-hand turn, and I'll read to you about the immoral woman. This is the immoral woman in chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Again, she's talked about in chapter 22 of, of Proverbs. In verse uh, 14, very similar, it says, the, woman, the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Many a man, many a wise man, many a good man has been led astray by an immoral woman. We can just look at scads of past leaders. Think of political leaders, right? You just have been led astray by an immoral woman. And I would say that probably most of the time these men did not have fear of God, although we do see it in the Christian world, in the churches, don't we? We see men who are supposed to have fear of God. We see men who are supposed to be leaders and examples in the church, and yet they fall to the immoral woman. Happens there. Let me tell you, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be happening. Not that we're all perfect, but a fear of God is supposed to help keep us from sin. What happens in those moments is that we lose that fear of God, and we replace the fear of God with something that's a little bit more valuable to us at the moment, something that we desire. We want to just kind of maybe put God in a little box for a bit, pretend that he's not really here, and get what we want and hope that we'll get away with it. Listen, that's not a fear of God. Fear of God is understanding that he is a providential God. He's a sovereign God. He sees all things. He knows all things. And God is with you in that moment. That's a scary thought. And so fear of God will keep many a person from sin. Just one example given here. Secondly, wisdom also reveals this truth. Wise men are exceedingly rare. <laughs> exceedingly rare. Verses 27 and 28. Here is what I have found, Solomon says. Says the preacher. Remember, he calls himself the preacher. That's what Ecclesiastes is. is the, the name for Ecclesiastes is the preacher. Adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, this passage is still dealing with wisdom, so keep in, that in mind as he draws this distinction between the sexes here, okay? The emphasis here is not on what he found, but what, I found, what he found lacking. Look at what he said. A wise man was only found in only one-tenth of one percent. Wisdom in women, he says, was rarer, but the point is that it's rare in anyone. And the reason he says that about the women is that his understanding, this more of how Solomon approached women. Do you remember how many women he had around him in 1 Kings 11? We read that a lot of times, right? He had a lot of women, and all those wives and all those concubines were living to please him and not God, right? That was, that was his pool of resources, one man in a thousand I found who could be wise. I didn't find any of my, my pool of resources from a woman. I, I didn't find that. The point is, it's just so rare. 
It's just so rare that you would find someone who is wise. Why? Why is it so rare? What is the problem? Doesn't it sound like it should be something that's easy? We have scripture, we have Proverbs, we have these books of of wisdom that should guide us to it. Why is it so problem? He gives us the answer in verse 29. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Man is the problem, not God. Man's the problem. It's not, it's not God. It's not him withholding wisdom. The problem's not with, with God. and he, He's not mean. The problem is with man. The blame for the rarity of wisdom is attributed to no one but man. We were made originally upright. When God created man, he created man, male and female, in his own image, in righteousness, holiness, in knowledge. He had the knowledge of good and evil. He had all those things in terms of what God had told him to do, not to do, right? But when he ate of that tree and Adam and Eve committed that skin, the sin, many schemes, right? He says, man has sought out many schemes. He's, he's thinking back here to Genesis chapter three. And they fell. They fell from their original condition. That is the idea of the fall. We all know the word the fall, but the fall means we fell from that place, Did you guys realize that? It meant we were upright. It meant we were holy and righteous and we had knowledge, but we fell from that place. We're not here. We're here. We were upright. Now we're here. That's the idea. We walk in this place. That's called original sin because Adam sinned. That sin is carried with us and we carry it on. We have the original sin of Adam. In addition to the original sin of Adam, we have all the acts of disobedience that we do as well. Anyone excited now? Turn to Romans chapter 5. I want to close with this. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 really explains this. I encourage you to go home and read the whole chapter. We don't have time for it today. I need to wrap up here. But in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, we hear about this, this original sin in Adam that spread to all mankind. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him, who was to come. Sin reigned in all of us, even though you didn't go bite an apple or a pear or a pomegranate or whatever you want to think of this. It's just a fruit. We know. We know it's a fruit. We know what kind. All right? You, you didn't do that actual uh, sin, but all sin, all sin has been now imputed to us. We have this original sin in our lives. What, what can we do about it? Well, notice that he says there that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Who is the him that was to come? We'll skip down to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, 
many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God made man upright. We fell in sin. Man sought out many schemes, but one came to offer us the free gift of salvation, the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And from that, we actually can have a righteous standing before God. And from that, we can have wisdom. All of us, uh, you can have a wisdom because the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit reveals truth to you. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I made many a foolish decision before I walked with the Lord. I was just completely oblivious. I was making it up as I went, right? Let's see what happens this way. Oh, that stunk. Let's go this way, right? You just, no clue, wandering, meandering. Listen, most of the world lives that way. Solomon is saying, let me just show you the good thing about wisdom. But he's talking about, this is where wisdom comes. This is how we can live that way. You can have that today. No, you're not going to be Solomon, right? You're not going to be quoting all these Proverbs. Oh, maybe you will be. I don't know. But you can have that kind of wisdom. You can make right choices, godly choices, and you can live for him. You can avoid the pitfalls, right? Sadly, many of us just learned about those things because we fell into the pit. <laughs> but aren't you glad there's one who came and took you out of the pit? I am too. So praise God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for Solomon's wisdom, wisdom that we can apply today. There's nothing here that doesn't apply uh, to us that we can't use today. So encouraging. Lord, we just thank you so much that we can be upright in you, that we can be sinless in you. Yes, man sought out many schemes. Lord, we, we were schemers. We were sinners. But you demonstrate your love for us in that while we were still those scheming sinners, you died for us. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much for that truth. We thank you that we can have that righteous standing. And, Lord, that we can have the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us, to impart a biblical truth into our hearts that we might apply these, these principles of wisdom to our lives, that we might live in a way that glorifies you. Oh, Lord, I just pray that we would take to heart just one or two of these principles that we learn today. And begin living for you in the godly way that honors you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.